From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wikiredia, wherein we read from start to finish, without comment or commentary, the Wikipedia entries that we find most interesting. Today's topic, the Lindbergh kidnapping. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Lindbergh underscore kidnapping. And we're tapping into this text under the Creative Commons license, which permits adaptation and retransmission of original work provided attribution is made. Wikiredia is similarly distributed under the same Creative Commons license. One last thing before we start. We want to know what your favorite Wikipedia pages are. Please send suggestions for future episodes to wikiredia at pm.me. This is The Lindbergh Kidnapping, Wikiredia episode number 303, date of production February 12th, 2023, and I'm your host, Eric Gorris. Let's get started. Lindbergh Kidnapping. On March 1st, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., born June 22, 1930, the 20-month-old son of aviators Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was abducted from his crib in the upper floor of the Lindbergh's home, Highfields, in East Amwell, New Jersey, United States. On May 12th, the child's corpse was discovered by a truck driver by the side of a nearby road. In September 1934, a German immigrant carpenter named Bruno Richard Hauptmann was arrested for the crime. After a trial that lasted from January 2nd to February 13th, 1935, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Despite his conviction, he continued to profess his innocence, but all appeals failed and he was executed in the electric chair at the New Jersey State Prison on April 3, 1936. Newspaper writer H.L. Mencken called the kidnapping and the trial, quote, the biggest story since the resurrection. Legal scholars have referred to the trial as one of the, quote, trials of the century. The crime spurred Congress to pass the Federal Kidnapping Act, commonly called the Little Lindbergh Law, which made transporting a kidnapping victim across state lines a federal crime. Kidnapping At approximately 10 p.m., on March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gao, found that 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was not with his mother, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who had just come out of the bathtub. Gao then alerted Charles Lindbergh, who immediately went to the child's room, where he found a ransom note containing bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope on the windowsill. Taking a gun, Lindbergh went around the house and grounds with family butler, Ollie Wheatley. They found impressions in the ground under the window of the baby's room, pieces of a wooden ladder, and a baby's blanket. Wheatley telephoned the Hopewell Police Department while Lindbergh contacted his attorney and friend, Harry Breckenridge, and the New Jersey State Police.
investigation. Hopewell Borough Police and New Jersey State Police officers conducted an extensive search of the home and its surrounding area. After midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and ladder. No usable fingerprints or footprints were found, leading experts to conclude that the kidnappers wore gloves and had some type of cloth on the soles of their shoes. No adult fingerprints were found in the baby's room, including in the areas witnesses admitted to touching, such as the window. But the baby's fingerprints were found. The brief handwritten ransom note had many spelling and grammar irregularities, reading, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. At the bottom of the note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. On further examination of the ransom note by professionals, they found that it was all written by the same person. They determined that due to the odd English, the writer must have been foreign and had spent some time, but little time, in America. The FBI then found a sketch artist to make a portrait of the man that they believed to be the kidnapper. Another attempt on identifying the kidnapper was looking at the ladder that was used in the crime to abduct the child. Police realized that the ladder was not built correctly, but was built by someone who knew how to construct with wood and had prior experience in building. The ladder was examined for footprints, but none were found. Even slivers of the ladder had been examined, with the police believing that the examination of this evidence would lead to the kidnapper. They had a professional see how many different types of wood were used, pattern made by the nail holes, and if it was made indoors or outdoors. This would later be a key element in the trial of the man who was accused of kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. On March 2, 1932, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover got in contact with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department. He told the New Jersey police that they could contact the FBI for any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. The FBI did not have federal jurisdiction until on May 13, 1932, the president declared that the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey Police Department and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey State Police offered a $25,000 reward for anyone who could provide information pertaining to the case. On March 4, 1932, a man by the name of Gaston B. Means had a discussion with Evelyn Walsh McLean and told her that he would be of great importance in retrieving the Lindbergh baby. Means told McLean that he could find these kidnappers because he was approached weeks before the abduction about participating in a big kidnapping, and he claimed that his friend was the kidnapper of the Lindbergh child. The following day, Means told McLean that he had made contact with the person who had the Lindbergh child. He then convinced Mrs. McLean to hand him $100,000 to obtain the child because the ransom money had doubled. McLean obliged because she believed that Means really knew where the child was. She waited for the child's return every day until she finally asked Means for her money back. He refused. Mrs. McLean reported him to the police and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison on embezzlement charges. 
Violet Sharp, who was suspected as a conspirator, died by suicide on June 10th before she was scheduled to be questioned for the fourth time. Her involvement was later ruled out due to her having an alibi for the night of March 1st, 1932. In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt announced that the Federal Bureau of Investigation would take full jurisdiction over the case in October 1933. Prominence Word of the kidnapping spread quickly. Hundreds of people converged on the estate, destroying any footprint evidence. Along with police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh estate. Military colonels offered their aid, though they had only law enforcement expertise. Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. The other colonels were Henry Skillman Breckenridge, a Wall Street lawyer, and William J. Donovan, a hero of the First World War who would later, led, later head the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA. Lindbergh and these men speculated that the kidnapping was perpetrated by organized crime figures. They thought that the letter was written by someone who spoke German as his native language. At this time, Charles Lindbergh used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. They contacted Mickey Rosner, a Broadway hanger-on rumored to know mobsters. Rosner turned on to two speakeasy owners, Salvatore Salvi Spitali and Irving Bitz, for aid. Lindbergh quickly endorsed the duo and appointed them his intermediaries to deal with the mob. Several organized crime figures, notably Al Capone, Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner Zwillman, spoke from prison, offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or for legal favors. Specifically, Capone offered assistance in return for being released from prison under the pretense that his assistant would be more effective. This was quickly denied by authorities. The morning after the kidnapping, authorities notified President Herbert Hoover of the crime. At that time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime and the case did not seem to have any grounds for federal involvement. Attorney General William D. Mitchell met with Hoover and announced that the whole machinery of the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with New Jersey authorities. The Bureau of Investigation, later called the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case, while the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia were told their services might be required. New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the safe return of little Lindy. The Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward of their own. At this time, the total reward of $75,000, approximately equivalent to $1.235 million in 2021, was a tremendous sum of money because the nation was in the midst of the Great Depression. On March 6, a new ransom letter arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home. The letter was postmarked March 4th in Brooklyn, and it carried the perforated red and blue marks. The ransom had been raised to $70,000. A third ransom note, postmarked from Brooklyn and also including the secret marks, arrived in Breckenridge's mail. The note told the Lindberghs that John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. 
Instructions specified the size of the box of money should come in and warn the family not to contact police. Investigation Hopewell Borough Police and New Jersey State Police officers conducted an extensive search of the home and its surrounding area. After midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and ladder. No usable fingerprints or footprints were found, leading experts to conclude that the kidnappers wore gloves and had some type of cloth on the soles of their shoes. No adult fingerprints were found in the baby's room, including in the areas witnesses admitted to touching, such as the window. But the baby's fingerprints were found. The brief handwritten ransom note had many spelling and grammar irregularities, reading, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. At the bottom of the note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. On further examination of the ransom note by professionals, they found that it was all written by the same person. They determined that due to the odd English, the writer must have been foreign and had spent some time, but little time, in America. The FBI then found a sketch artist to make a portrait of the man that they believed to be the kidnapper. Another attempt on identifying the kidnapper was looking at the ladder that was used in the crime to abduct the child. Police realized that the ladder was not built correctly, but was built by someone who knew how to construct with wood and had prior experience in building. The ladder was examined for footprints, but none were found. Even slivers of the ladder had been examined, with the police believing that the examination of this evidence would lead to the kidnapper. They had a professional see how many different types of wood were used, pattern made by the nail holes, and if it was made indoors or outdoors. This would later be a key element in the trial of the man who was accused of kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. On March 2, 1932, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover got in contact with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department. He told the New Jersey police that they could contact the FBI for any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. The FBI did not have federal jurisdiction until on May 13, 1932, the president declared that the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey Police Department and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey State Police offered a $25,000 reward for anyone who could provide information pertaining to the case. On March 4, 1932, a man by the name of Gaston B. Means had a discussion with Evelyn Walsh McLean and told her that he would be of great importance in retrieving the Lindbergh baby. Means told McLean that he could find these kidnappers because he was approached weeks before the abduction about participating in a big kidnapping, and he claimed that his friend was the kidnapper of the Lindbergh child. The following day, Means told McLean that he had made contact with the person who had the Lindbergh child. 
He then convinced Mrs. McLean to hand him $100,000 to obtain the child because the ransom money had doubled. McLean obliged because she believed that Means really knew where the child was. She waited for the child's return every day until she finally asked Means for her money back. He refused. Mrs. McLean reported him to the police and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison on embezzlement charges. Violet Sharp, who was suspected as a conspirator, died by suicide on June 10th before she was scheduled to be questioned for the fourth time. Her involvement was later ruled out due to her having an alibi for the night of March 1st, 1932. In 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt announced that the Federal Bureau of Investigation would take full jurisdiction over the case in October 1933. Prominence Word of the kidnapping spread quickly. Hundreds of people converged on the estate, destroying any footprint evidence. Along with police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh estate. Military colonels offered their aid, though they had only law enforcement expertise. Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. The other colonels were Henry Skillman Breckenridge, a Wall Street lawyer, and William J. Donovan, a hero of the First World War, who would later lead later head the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA. Lindbergh and these men speculated that the kidnapping was perpetrated by organized crime figures. They thought that the letter was written by someone who spoke German as his native language. At this time, Charles Lindbergh used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. They contacted Mickey Rosner, a Broadway hanger-on rumored to know mobsters. Rosner turned on to two speakeasy owners, Salvatore Salvi Spitali and Irving Bitts, for aid. Lindbergh quickly endorsed the duo and appointed them his intermediaries to deal with the mob. Several organized crime figures, notably Al Capone, Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner Zwillman, spoke from prison, offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or for legal favors. Specifically, Capone offered assistance in return for being released from prison under the pretense that his assistant would be more effective. This was quickly denied by authorities. The morning after the kidnapping, authorities notified President Herbert Hoover of the crime. At that time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime and the case did not seem to have any grounds for federal involvement. Attorney General William D. Mitchell met with Hoover and announced that the whole machinery of the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with New Jersey authorities. The Bureau of Investigation, later called the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case, while the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia were told their services might be required. New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the safe return of little Lindy. The Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward of their own. At this time, the total reward of $75,000, approximately equivalent to $1.235 million in 2021, was a tremendous sum of money because the nation was in the midst of the Great Depression. On March 6, a new ransom letter arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home. The letter was postmarked March 4th in Brooklyn, and it carried the perforated red and blue marks. 
the ransom had been raised to $70,000. A third ransom note, postmarked from Brooklyn and also including the secret marks, arrived in Breckenridge's mail. The note told the Lindberghs that John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. Instructions specified the size of the box of money should come in and warn the family not to contact police. Arrest of Hauptmann During a 30-month period, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout New York City. Detectives realized that many of the bills were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. On September 18, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom, a New York license plate number, for you 1341NY, penciled in the bill's margin, allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. The station manager had written down the license number because his customer was acting suspicious and was probably a counterfeiter. The license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard Hauptmann of 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx, an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. When Hauptmann was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and more than $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. Hauptmann was arrested interrogated, and beaten at least once throughout the following day and night. Hauptmann stated that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner Isidore Fish. Fish had died on March 29, 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. Hauptmann stated that he learned only after Fish's death that the shoebox that was left with him contained a considerable sum of money. He kept the money because he claimed that it was owed to him from a business deal that he and Fish had made. Hauptmann consistently denied any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. When the police searched Hauptmann's home, they found a considerable amount of additional evidence that linked him to the crime. One item was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder similar to that which was found at the Lindbergh home in March 1932. John Condon's telephone number, along with his address, were discovered written on a closet wall in the house. A key piece of evidence, a section of wood, was discovered in the attic of the home. After being examined by an expert, it was determined to be an exact match to the wood used in the construction of the ladder found at the scene of the crime. Hauptmann was indicted in the Bronx on September 24, 1934, for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, on October 8th, Hauptmann was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Two days later, he was surrendered to New Jersey authorities by New York Governor Herbert H. Lehman to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child. Hauptmann was moved to the Hunterton County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey on October 19th.
Trial and execution. Trial. Hauptmann was charged with capital murder. The trial was held at the Hunterton County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey, and was soon dubbed, quote, the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed the town, and every hotel room was booked. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. In exchange for rights to publish Hauptmann's story in their newspaper, Edward J. Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hauptmann's attorney. David T. Willens, Attorney General of New Jersey, led the prosecution. Evidence against Hauptmann included $20,000 of the ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were similar to those of the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts, including Albert S. Osborne, pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Hauptmann's writing specimens. The defense called an expert to rebut this evidence, while two others declined to testify. The latter two demanded $500 before looking at the notes and were dismissed when Lloyd Fisher, a member of Hauptmann's legal team, declined. Other experts retained by the defense were never called to testify. On the basis of the work of Arthur Kohler at the Forest Products Laboratory, the state introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder matched a plank from the floor of Hoptiman's attic. The type of wood, the direction of tree growth, the milling pattern, the inside and outside surface of the wood, and the grain on both sides were identical, and four oddly placed nail holes lined up with nail holes in joists in Hoptiman's attic. Condon's address and telephone number were written in pencil on a closet door in Hoptman's home, and Hoptman told police that he had written Condon's address, quote, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit record of it, and maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. A sketch that Willens suggested represented a ladder was found in one of Hauptmann's notebooks. Hauptmann said this picture and other sketches therein were the work of a child. Despite not having an obvious source of earned income, Hauptmann had bought a $400 radio, approximately equivalent to $8,100 in 2021, and sent his wife on a trip to Germany. Hauptmann was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hauptmann who spent some time of the Lindbergh Gold Certificates and that he had been seen in the area of the estate in East Amwell, New Jersey, near Hopewell, on the day of the kidnapping, and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and had quit his job two days earlier. Hauptmann never sought another job afterwards, yet continued to live comfortably. When the prosecution rested its case, the defense opened with a lengthy examination of Hoffman. In his testimony, Hoffman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates had been left in his garage by a friend, Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany in December 1933 and died there in March 1934. Hauptmann said that he had one day found a shoebox left behind by Fish, which Hauptmann had stored on the top shelf of his kitchen broom closet, later discovering the money, which he later found to be almost $40,000, approximately equivalent to $642,000 in 2021. 
Hoftman said that because Fish had owed him about 7500 in business funds, Hoftman had kept the money for himself and lived on it since January 1934. The defense called Hoptman's wife, Anna, to corroborate the fish story. On cross-examination, she admitted that while she hung her apron every day on a hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing any shoebox there. Later, rebuttal witnesses testified that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. Fish's landlady testified that he barely could afford the $3.50 weekly rent of his room. In his closing summation, Riley argued that the evidence against Hauptmann was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness had placed Hauptmann at the scene of the crime, nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder, on the ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. Appeals Hauptmann was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorneys appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court. The appeal was argued on June 19, 1935. New Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman secretly visited Hauptmann in his cell on the evening of October 16th, accompanied by a stenographer who spoke German fluently. Hoffman urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hauptmann. In late January 1936, while declaring that he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hauptmann, Hoffman cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job and directed Schwarzkopf to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties involved to justice. It became known among the press on March 27, Hoffman was considering a second reprieve of Hauptmann's death sentence and was seeking opinions about whether the governor had the right to issue a second reprieve. On March 30, 1936, Hauptmann's second and final appeal, asking for clemency from the New Jersey Board of Pardons, was denied. Hoffman later announced that his decision would be the final legal action in the case and that he would not grant another reprieve. Nonetheless, there was a postponement when the Mercer County Grand Jury, investigating the confession and arrest of Trenton attorney Paul Wendell, requested a delay from Warden Mark Kimberling. This, the final stay, ended when the Mercer County prosecutor informed Kimberling that the grand jury had adjourned after voting to end its investigation without charging Wendell. Execution Hauptmann turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He was electrocuted on April 3, 1936. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hauptmann sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband. The suits were dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and because the statute of limitations had run out. She continued fighting to clear his name until her death at age 95 in 1994. Trial and Execution Trial 
Hauptmann was charged with capital murder. The trial was held at the Hunterton County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey, and was soon dubbed, quote, the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed the town, and every hotel room was booked. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. In exchange for rights to publish Hauptmann's story in their newspaper, Edward J. Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hauptmann's attorney. David T. Willens, Attorney General of New Jersey, led the prosecution. Evidence against Hauptmann included $20,000 of the ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that his handwriting and spelling were similar to those of the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts, including Albert S. Osborne, pointed out similarities between the ransom notes and Hauptmann's writing specimens. The defense called an expert to rebut this evidence, while two others declined to testify. The latter two demanded $500 before looking at the notes and were dismissed when Lloyd Fisher, a member of Hauptmann's legal team, declined. Other experts retained by the defense were never called to testify. On the basis of the work of Arthur Kohler at the Forest Products Laboratory, the state introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder matched a plank from the floor of Hoptiman's attic. The type of wood, the direction of tree growth, the milling pattern, the inside and outside surface of the wood, and the grain on both sides were identical, and four oddly placed nail holes lined up with nail holes in joists in Hoptiman's attic. Condon's address and telephone number were written in pencil on a closet door in Hoptman's home, and Hoptman told police that he had written Condon's address, quote, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit record of it, and maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. A sketch that Willens suggested represented a ladder was found in one of Hauptmann's notebooks. Hauptmann said this picture and other sketches therein were the work of a child. Despite not having an obvious source of earned income, Hauptmann had bought a $400 radio, approximately equivalent to $8,100 in 2021, and sent his wife on a trip to Germany. Hauptmann was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hauptmann who spent some time of the Lindbergh Gold Certificates and that he had been seen in the area of the estate in East Amwell, New Jersey, near Hopewell, on the day of the kidnapping, and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and had quit his job two days earlier. Hauptmann never sought another job afterwards, yet continued to live comfortably. When the prosecution rested its case, the defense opened with a lengthy examination of Hoffman. In his testimony, Hoffman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates had been left in his garage by a friend, Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany in December 1933 and died there in March 1934. Hauptmann said that he had one day found a shoebox left behind by Fish, which Hauptmann had stored on the top shelf of his kitchen broom closet, later discovering the money, which he later found to be almost $40,000, approximately equivalent to $642,000 in 2021. 
Hoffman said that because Fish had owed him about $7,500 in business funds, Hoffman had kept the money for himself and lived on it since January 1934. The defense called Hauptmann's wife, Anna, to corroborate the fish story. On cross-examination, she admitted that while she hung her apron every day on a hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing any shoebox there. Later, rebuttal witnesses testified that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis. Fish's landlady testified that he barely could afford the $3.50 weekly rent of his room. In his closing summation, Riley argued that the evidence against Hauptmann was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness had placed Hauptmann at the scene of the crime, nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder, on the ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. Appeals Hauptmann was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorneys appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court. The appeal was argued on June 19, 1935. New Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman secretly visited Hauptmann in his cell on the evening of October 16th, accompanied by a stenographer who spoke German fluently. Hoffman urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hauptmann. In late January 1936, while declaring that he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hauptmann, Hoffman cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job and directed Schwarzkopf to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties involved to justice. It became known among the press on March 27, Hoffman was considering a second reprieve of Hauptmann's death sentence and was seeking opinions about whether the governor had the right to issue a second reprieve. On March 30, 1936, Hauptmann's second and final appeal, asking for clemency from the New Jersey Board of Pardons, was denied. Hoffman later announced that his decision would be the final legal action in the case and that he would not grant another reprieve. Nonetheless, there was a postponement when the Mercer County Grand Jury, investigating the confession and arrest of Trenton attorney Paul Wendell, requested a delay from Warden Mark Kimberling. This, the final stay, ended when the Mercer County prosecutor informed Kimberling that the Grand Jury had adjourned after voting to end its investigation without charging Wendell. Execution Hauptmann turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He was electrocuted on April 3, 1936. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witness tampering and planted evidence. Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hauptmann sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband. The suits were dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and because the statute of limitations had run out. She continued fighting to clear his name until her death at age 95 in 1994. In popular culture, in novels, 
1934, Agatha Christie was inspired by the circumstances of the case when she described the kidnapping of baby girl Daisy Armstrong in her novel, Murder on the Orient Express. 1981, the kidnapping and its aftermath served as the inspiration for Maurice Sendak's book, Outside Over There. 1993, in the novel Along Came a Spider by James Patterson, in the film based on the novel, a character takes inspiration from the Lindbergh kidnapping for his crime. 2013, The Aviator's Wife by Melanie Benjamin is a work of historical fiction told from the perspective of Anne Murrow Lindbergh. In music, May 1932, just one day after the Lindbergh baby was discovered murdered, the prolific country recording artist Bob Miller, under the pseudonym Bob Ferguson, recorded two songs for Columbia on May 13, 1932, commemorating the event. The songs were released on Columbia 15759-D with titles Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. and There's a New Star Up in Heaven, Baby Lindy is Up There. In film, 1996, Crime of the Century. 2011, the kidnapping, investigation, and trial are figured featured in J. Edgar, the biopic of J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, directed by Clint Eastwood, and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. In television, 1976, the Lindbergh kidnapping case. American Horror Story, season one. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Gorris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, Sharealike 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation. Oh, thank you.